0: Thanks for listening to the Frontline Audiocast, the enhanced audio version of our television documentaries. But we wanted to take a moment to let you know about Frontline's Other Feed, a podcast now in its second season that produces original documentaries made for listening. It's called the Frontline Dispatch, and you can find it by searching Frontline Dispatch in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. But back to the Frontline Audiocast, here is the audiocast of Cole's Deadly Dust, Broadcast January 22nd. The narrator and correspondent is NPR reporter Howard Berkus.
1: I've mowed that bank right there since I was a little boy. Lord, eight or nine years old. It's just a simple task to most people, but to me, this is something, that's like a, a challenge that you have to get through. I believe fully if, if I hadn't really got up and started moving around because I was so sick, I would have sat in my chair and died, and and things like this right here, I get up and it gives me, I motivate myself to do it.
2: During the past six years, I've been in and out of the coal fields of West Virginia, Virginia, Kentucky, and Pennsylvania, meeting sick and dying coal miners. At first, I reported for NPR the resurgence of a deadly coal mining disease, black lung, which had been declining for decades. Then I got a tip two years ago about an outbreak of the most advanced form of black lung disease, and I began looking into why it was happening. So this morning we're headed to visit with Danny Smith. He's a young guy, he's younger than what you'd expect for somebody to be so sick with this disease. So you said uh, you had a rough time last night?
1: Yeah, I sleep in my chair, but
2: So you sleep out here in the living room in, in a Most chair? Most of the time
1: I sleep in a recliner, yeah.
2: Danny Smith is just 47 years old. He mined coal only 12 years, but he's desperately
1: sick. Are you ready, sissy? Yeah. Well, let day turn his oxygen off and I'll get my stuff ready and we'll go. <coughs> I started getting shortness of breath around 2007, 2006. I could, I could tell the difference in just the things that I was doing around here. <clears throat>
3: you want me to get this?
1: With the oxygen, yeah, I need it. And in 2012, I believe it was, they'd done a CT scan, and they'd seen all the spots on my lungs. They said, it's black lung, you read up a black lung. They put me in a hospital. I had 30-some pounds of fluid on me, on my lungs. I'm not feeling good today, baby. I didn't sleep good. I was scared. It was tough on all of us because my wife was scared that I was dying, and I was scared that I was dying. And I was. (coughs)
4: Can
1: you turn that oxygen back there? (coughs) Just pull that little green handle. Just pull it, like, towards you. There we go. Now I got to get it on my face. <laughs> I think about all the hours that I worked. I was under one month. I never come outside for four days. I actually slept on the ground. And you sit and think about that, and all the things that I give up with my family. You know, I work in anywhere from twelve to eighteen hours a day. I'm dying over it now. You know what I'm saying? I love you. Give me a kiss.
2: As I met more miners like Danny Smith, it became clear that they were getting this advanced black lung disease younger and more quickly than in the past. Greg. Hey. I'm Howard Burkus from National Public Radio. Great to meet you. Mm-hmm. Greg Kelly is just 54 years old, still relatively young for a miner so sick.
4: That's me and that's my step there. How long did you spend in mining? 31 years. Years one. That was in 83. And what made you stop mining? Uh, My health. I just couldn't. Uh, I got sick. and They said, we don't want you to go back to work until you see a lung doctor. When I did get to see him, he said, uh, you know, you don't need to go back underground.
2: Was that the first time you learned that you had black right.
4: lung? Yeah, that's the first doctor that ever said, you know, you've got black lung. I've had two or three x-ray technicians tell me they're the worst set-longs they've ever seen.
2: What kind of reaction did you have when you heard about that? You can't work.
4: It's just like a light switch. and turned on. And turned off. Uh, All your plans. That you had, you know hunting and fishing and doing what you want to do. When that day comes, well, all of a sudden it's here and you can't, you don't have the air to do it. You know, I still enjoy life and have a good time, I get to play with my grandson, it's just not like I want to and like I used to be able to, you know. You catch one. There he is. You got well, it. I just try to pray and ask the Lord to help me to overcome it, right and just go on and, and be with my family. Go on <clears throat> you got one, didn't you? Well, the whole time I've been over, I can't breathe. And then when you raise up, you you got to just stand still to uh, get your breath. Come on, let's go show mom what you call.
0: Greg's son, Joshua.
4: It was kind of rough because I was in Texas when a lot of it first happened, being, you know, pretty far away from home. And Caden, he had to adjust with, uh, he had, when he first brought oxygen home or whatever, Caden asked, when's he gonna get better, you know, when's he gonna be able to go out and play like we used to? And that's what we had to tell him, you know, it, it never will change, you know, it would be the same.
1: That's the worst Won't part.
4: get no better. It's probably been the hardest ordeal in my grandson. The disease that steals the breath of coal miners is back with a vengeance.
2: Across Appalachia, I met dozens of other miners with this advanced black lung disease and started reporting their stories. Basic black lung diagnoses doubled in the last decade. Advanced disease quadrupled since the 1980s in Virginia, West Virginia, and Kentucky. One in five working coal miners in Appalachia could have diseased lungs. That's true for the thousands who've been tested, and it could be the rate for the rest. The more I reported, the more it became clear it was worse than anyone realized. Go see Brandon Crum in Kentucky, I was told. He's a radiologist whose clinic is overwhelmed with cases of advanced black lung disease known as progressive massive fibrosis or PMF.
5: So if I show you for comparison, this is a normal x-ray and you can see all the dark area, that's the lung, cause it's filled with air and you contrast that to this one. And all these, you see all these big white areas all the way through here, that's all conglomerate fibrotic mass, or PMF. The biggest concern at that time for me was seeing young men my age, and I'm I'm 43 or or younger than I am, uh, with the most severe form of the disease, which is the complicated black lung disease.
2: Crum was so concerned, he took his findings to researchers at the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH. So what happened two years ago in terms of uh, you sitting down
0: with people from NIOSH. Again, radiologist Brandon Crum.
5: Well, when I told him, you know, we were seeing, or I was seeing a lot of of complicated black lung disease, and and what was most concerning is I was seeing it in individuals in their 30s and 40s. I I think there was some uh, hesitancy on their part. I'm not sure they believe me. He told us that he was seeing uh, a lot of really advanced disease, and it was concerning
6: to him.
0: NIOSH epidemiologist Scott Laney.
6: And I guess my initial thought was, um, that's probably not true.
2: The researchers had been tracking black lung disease themselves for decades, but they only tested working minors, not those out of work, and hadn't detected the sharp rise in deadly PMF that Brandon Crum was
6: finding. He invited us to show us some of the, the medical images from his patients, and we sat there for an entire day, one after another, after another, looking at these chest x-rays, the worst I've ever seen.
2: What was your reaction to what you saw?
6: Horror, uh, shock. Uh, I don't know how how, many other words to to use. I I was really um, taken aback, not only that these cases were legitimate, but just how severe they were. It indicated that we had a huge problem, and we realized immediately that it wasn't going to be isolated to a single clinic.
2: Researchers at NIOSH had only reported 99 cases of PMF in the previous five years. But out-of-work miners had been flooding clinics, and in calls and visits to 16 clinics across Appalachia, Frontline and NPR, identified close to 2,000 cases in the same time frame. The Stone Mountain Clinics in southwestern Virginia reported more cases than anyone. Ron Carson directed the clinic at the time.
7: We're going to put you in the room. Come on with me. What NIOSH reported maybe 90 or 100 x-rays. All right,
8: if you'll step up by real close for me.
7: So we came back and we started um, doing a study on how many we actually had. Pulling x-rays back to uh, 2014 to 2017, three years of x-rays. We quickly identified 416 during that three-year period. However, if we had went back to 2010 at a minimum, we could have probably doubled that.
9: The breathing out deep and fast. In and out. And Stop.
7: And I don't know what your test will reveal today, but, and I tell everybody this for almost 30 years, don't get discouraged.
2: But the count here at Stone Mountain is now nearly 800, with a dozen new cases a month.
7: My buddy here. Buddy. <laughs> okay. God bless you, my buddy. Uh-huh. God bless you. I just think that America needs to know that these miners, they have paid a price. So many years, these miners extract this coal so that you and I can... (laughs) Kateria. I'm sorry. (laughs) They pay the price. They have paid the price so that We can have uh, luxury. And um, I just feel like America has just forgotten about him.
0: Danny Smith enters a clinic. All right.
10: Give us. And we thank you for your love that is unconditional. In Jesus' name we
2: pray. Amen. Amen. With no cure, Danny Smith finds some help with his breathing at a pulmonary rehab clinic. Miners come here as much as four days a week and they're monitored closely.
1: Marcy. To drop down.
0: Can
8: I drop down today? Yes, she can't. What's Danny's heart rate? 96. Let's stop and catch our breath there for a second.
0: Respiratory therapist, Marcy Tate.
8: Danny, when he first started with us, he would break out in a cold sweat, literally drenched, and he would start shallow breathing. Depression, anxiety, you know, that is as that is much a part of this disease as their breathing is. And we'll, we're gonna turn it way down, okay?
1: Uh. Yeah, it feels pretty good right there.
8: It takes them approximately three to six months to build up when they start this program. At six months they're typically maxed out. If they're out for two weeks, they lose pretty much everything they gained. Once they go in. If into... I miss
1: one or two visits, I could tell it I mean it's affected me.
8: Right, you did it? 10 uh, minutes? I got it. These men, literally, if they go home and they sit down, they've got about six months to live.
1: If I hadn't started here, I'd already been dead. He would have. I believe that, too.
8: I do. I
1: love y'all. Y'all are my angels. See y'all.
0: Ah. University of Illinois pulmonologist, Dr. Robert Cohen.
9: When people get the first stages of the disease, they require oxygen, and then even the oxygen that you're adding to that person so that they can do more (laughs) isn't enough. And so they're essentially suffocating while alive. Something seemed to change where people were more heavily exposed to perhaps more toxic dust and were getting this very severe form of the disease that from my medical school training and from my past clinical practice was rare. Uh, We didn't see that many cases of PMF and it was something that we thought had been relegated to the trash heap of history.
2: The modern era of coal mine regulation began nearly 50 years ago, in part because 40,000 coal miners staged a wildcat strike in West Virginia, demanding government action on black lines.
9: The greatest heroes are you, the coal miners.
7: You've taken the future, your future in your hands, and you proclaim no longer are we gonna live and work and die like animals. We're free men!
2: Congress responded with a tough new law that was supposed to protect miners from the coal mine dust that poisons lungs. And in the early 70s, A new federal research agency, NIOSH, began to monitor black lung disease among working minors.
9: We saw a nice reduction in the rates of disease falling down to very low levels. Pulmonologist Robert Cohen. And then that, um, I call it the U-shaped curve of concern, the curve went down and hit the bottom and then started to go back up again, meaning that um, something changed, we took our eye off the ball, something else happened, and the disease was recurring.
2: What changed was mining itself. Big and pure coal seams were mined out. Thinner seams embedded in rock were left. Mining machines cut more and more of that rock, producing fine and sharp particles of quartz or silica, toxic dust that the existing mining regulations didn't directly control.
9: Somewhere in the late 20th century, there has been a change in the composition of the dust we're seeing more silica, and silica is 20 times more toxic than coal. When you inhale silica, it's retained in the lung. These miners are inhaling their workplace, and it stays with them forever. By
2: the mid-1990s, federal regulators knew there was a problem. NIOSH recommended new silica regulation, including an exposure limit twice as tough, but the proposals didn't go anywhere.
0: Howard Burkus, with former Mine Safety and Health Administration advisor, Celeste Montfortin.
2: So you worked for the agency back in this time frame. Mm-hmm. Why didn't the agency mm-hmm. respond to mm-hmm. this?
3: There was a lot of reluctance both in the mining industry and um, I think also with from the mine workers union about the what they would call complexity of really doing both a coal mine dust standard and a silica standard. Now we see, in miners who were, again, working at that period of time and now are the ones that are seriously ill from that disease.
2: They're dying. Yeah. Terrible deaths.
3: Yeah. Had we taken action at that time, I really believe that we would not be seeing the disease that we're seeing now.
2: It wasn't until 2014 that the Mine Safety and Health Administration, MSHA, put in place new restrictions on coal mine dust. But again, something was missing. This is the new dust rules that took effect in 2014. What's interesting is this section here where MSHA said it wasn't establishing a new limit for quartz or silica. Instead of imposing specific new limits on silica dust, regulators continued to rely on rules that control coal mine dust overall and a complex formula to measure exposure that dates back decades. We decided to see if this approach had really worked, using EMSHA's own data. This is the formula that is actually still in use. And what our data shows, what Emsha's data shows, is that that formula hasn't worked 9,000 times since 1986. We can see it in the data, it's kind of puzzling why they didn't see it in the data and why they don't think this is important enough to have a different kind of regulatory process.
4: We do have a new respirable dust rule. I, I say it's new. It's
2: 2014. Greg Neichel is responsible for coal miners' health at MSHA. That's right. I sought in interviews with him and other agency officials for months without any success until this annual West Virginia Black Lung Conference. Greg, uh, I'm Howard Burkus from NPR and PBS Frontline.
4: I have not met you.
2: We have not met, but I have wanted to talk to you, and I'm going to take advantage of that right now. Um, uh, you said uh, that you need to establish an incident rate before you can...
4: Respond as a regulatory agency. What do you mean exactly? well Incident rate is how many miners if we'd have no miners That are diseased then the protections are effective Well,
2: you have lots of miners with disease so that means the protections are ineffective
4: We've got a new rule the old old rule, we had some problems and, and that's why we went to the new rule. The new rule doesn't
2: measure separately for silica. That's what's still in place. That was what is was in place in the old rule. And we have thousands of miners who have progressive massive fibrosis. Doesn't that need to be changed? If the problem here is silica, don't you need to separately regulate silica?
4: Well, the. Under, in the preamble to the new rule, it said that quartz was not being addressed.
2: In the new rules, MSHA officials cited research that said coal mine dust was the main factor in black lung and PMF. And they continue to stand by that idea that limiting coal dust overall protects miners from excessive exposure to silica. As for the coal mining industry, It once proposed focused regulation of silica, but mining companies continue to cut thin seams and create toxic silica dust.
11: We sympathize with those individuals, with those families.
0: Bruce Watzman of the National Mining Association.
11: If we could turn back the hands of time, we would do so to prevent this. But, you know, we can't. We're dealing with historic exposures And from our perspective, what we need to be focused on today is how do we prevent a reoccurrence of this?
2: You've talked about the idea of looking ahead. But what we see as we look at data of exposures, and it shows that there were thousands and thousands and thousands of exposures, not 30 and 40 years ago, but also 20 and 10 years ago. And the industry knew that mines were cutting more and more rock, which was creating the silica. Why didn't the industry recognize what was going on and do something about it when it was taking place?
11: Well, I don't, I don't think it's entirely fair to say that the industry didn't recognize and didn't do anything. You know, for a long period of time, we've been pleading, and I'll use that word, we've been pleading with the agency to allow us to use non-traditional controls for dust control.
2: You can slow down the mining machines. You can maybe cut production a little bit so that you're not generating as much dust. Or maybe you decide that you don't cut so much rock and you don't cut those thinner seams. Aren't those things that mining companies could have done? You don't need regulation to
11: do that. Sure, they could have done that. But again, Howard, I'm not going to speculate on why they did or didn't do what they chose. You know, our focus here is forward-looking. How do we prevent this in the future? I can't answer for those what occurred in the past. Were we really focusing on the right thing? You know, Emsha had a, uh, a mantra and black lung, and we support that. But coal dust might not have really been where the focus should have been at that time. It might have been silica rather than coal dust.
2: For months, I'd been trying to talk to the head of MSHA about the PMF epidemic and the agency's decisions to not directly address silica.
10: The EMSHA mission is to prevent death, illness and injury from mining and promote safe and healthful workplaces for U.S. miners, a very honorable mission.
2: David Zateslo is a former mining company executive who runs the agency. In September, we tracked him to a rare public appearance here at West Virginia University.
10: Silica is toxic to your body. You hear the phrase in health circles over progressive, massive fibrosis, these sorts of things. To me, I believe those are all clearly silica problems. Silica is something that has to be controlled.
2: I was surprised that Tesla was so clearly connecting PMF to silica, and wanted to know why this hadn't translated into direct action. Mr. Tesla, I'm Howard Burkis from National Public Radio and PBS Frontline. We've been uh, interested in talking to you about progressive massive fibrosis and the epidemic of disease. I'm wondering why you're unwilling to speak with us about that. We've uh, had multiple requests for interviews, ready to talk to you today, next week. In the past,
10: I don't think the science is that well defined on it yet, Howard.
2: You have 2,000 miners right now
10: with I don't. Progressive th- I mass don't of, think that the science of the causation is that well defined. I don't. You know. said
2: yourself, could that you? Was no, yeah.
10: I said yeah. I suspect silica. We've
2: interviewed dozens of coal miners, and they've told us about their experiences. They they all have progressive massive fibrosis. They're all dying from this disease. So they've talked about their experience. Okay, I'm supposed
10: to go up here to this picture.
2: So why won't you talk to us about this
10: issue? Why? Because you I don't ha- think you- the science has settled. On.
2: What has that got to do with it? You have so much what? experience in this field, as you just described, and you described all these deaths that are. I occurring. won't. Okay,
10: let me put this way. I won't talk to you about it because I'm supposed to go be in a picture right now.
8: Excuse me. Students are waiting for second place.
3: things that just makes me angry is there's such a lack of urgency in the agency.
0: Former MSHA advisor Celeste Monfortin.
3: It's abundantly clear in what we're seeing. This problem really is a silica problem. And it's really why we're seeing such severe disease in minors. So we know the problem is silica dust, yet that's not what we're protecting miners against, or our effort to protect them is utterly inadequate. I mean, I don't know how you can reach any other conclusion. And that is, I mean, this is such a gross and frank example of regulatory failure.
2: Given the time it takes for disease to appear, it could be a decade or more before we know whether the new coal mine dust rules have made any difference. In the meantime, there are still more than 50,000 coal miners working nationwide.
0: Howard Burkus with Danny Smith at a mine he used to work in.
2: When you come back here, do you feel,
1: you know, pride or regret? Uh, a little bit of both, honestly. I was proud of working here. I was a young man, and I was making good money. To sit back and look at it now, you know, they kind of molded us the way that they wanted to mold us. Buying us nice t-shirts and tools and hats all the time and all this trips and stuff like that, it wasn't worth it, you know, because, and the bonuses and all that stuff and we all worked our long hours and forsake our families for it. You know, it's tough. We was all young men. We were just kids. But we worked hard. We killed ourselves here. We have a family cemetery. And when you already got your plot picked out, at my age, it's kind of a scary thought, you know. I hope one day you get to see my grandchildren. I don't wanna talk more, okay? I'm sorry. Just give me a minute. I'm all right. If I can see my babies graduating from college, both of them.
2: Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. Additional support is provided by the Abrams Foundation, committed to excellence in journalism. The Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The John and Helen Glessner Family Trust, supporting trustworthy journalism that informs and inspires. The heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. And by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major
4: support from John and Joanne Hickler, and additional support from Laura DeBonis and Scott Nathan.
0: Deadly Dust was written, produced, and directed by Elaine McMillian Sheldon. The correspondent was Howard Burkus. Chad Irvin was co-producer, and Ken Dornstein was senior producer. The managing editor of Frontline is Andrew Metz. The executive producer of Frontline is Rainey aronson Ruff.